0: All right. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning as we continue our study in the book of Romans. Again, remind you, if you haven't picked one up, please do so. We have some on the table in the lobby. Uh, Grab one, okay? It it really is our goal to equip you to get the most out of this study, and you will get the most out of it if you actually engage the Word of God during the week, right? Actually studying and and reading the, the passage I'm going to be preaching the week before we get there, and, and digging into it, and then, of course, take some notes during the sermon, and, and, and then some questions to push you out into to community after, and a place for devotional prayer. Grab it, okay? We broke the book of Romans into five sections. We're going to be producing a book for each section. I would love it if at the end of this study, you have all five books sitting on your shelf as a personal record of your journey through the book of Romans what God has shown you, how God has impacted you, how God has worked in you through this process. So, so please engage. Uh, we created these resources specifically for that. If you've already fallen off the bandwagon, if you've got a book and you haven't done it for a couple weeks, just jump back on. Okay? That's the nice thing about the train. It always comes back around. Okay? Just get back on and, and, and keep going. Okay? All right. I want to give you a heads up. Next week, our sermon is going to be PG-13. Um, and so when we get into that sermon, I am going to ask that you're just aware of that, right? If if, if you have some kiddos that, that sit in service with you that you're not prepared to have um, a more mature conversation with, then we're going to have a, a space downstairs uh, for kids that have already aged out of Trailhead Kids. Um, we're going to have a classroom down there with some workers, and, and they're going to be doing some fun stuff down there. So so it is available, okay? Um, if you've already read ahead, um, you know what's coming. If you haven't, there's a good excuse to actually do your study this week, okay? So, so grab your study books and, and read and and, um, and be prepared for next week. All right, this morning, are we ready? What a beautiful day for a passage like this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who unrighteously suppress the truth, right? Uh, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. And before we dig in, I, I want to help set the stage. I want to give you a quick reminder of the beginning of the story, and by the beginning of the story, I mean the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Don't need to flip there, Um, but we're going to go back. Paul alludes to this story several times in in this chapter, and it is clearly the backdrop to much of what he's saying. In fact, he, he directly mentions creation in verse 20. And then in verse 23, when he's talking about us exchanging the glory of God for for images, he talks about the fourfold creation structure where he talks about men and birds and animals and creeping things, which is uh, a pattern that comes out of Genesis 1, okay? So clearly, Genesis 1 through 3 is is in his mind as he he writes this, and and so I want to go there to set the stage, just to remind you, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything and it's all good. Okay, so in Genesis 1 specifically, we see a six-day creation pattern, uh, and at the end of each day, God creates. He looks at everything he makes, and he he says, man, this is good. This is good. This is good. Gets to day six, creates uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, in his own image, unique in all of creation, and he says, man, this is very good. And for the first time, he says, behold, it is very good, because he has someone to share it with, right? He invites Adam and Eve into this incredible opportunity of looking at everything he's created. And he says, Behold, it is very good. And then they go into their first day of Sabbath, a day of of joy and rejoicing um, as, as they simply celebrate this incredibly good thing God made, right? That's what Sabbath rest is. It's delighting in all the delightful things that God is and he's done. Refreshes our energy, recenters our hearts, right? So they enter into the first Sabbath day. It's a beautiful picture of creation where all things are good until you get to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, everything goes south because humanity rebels against God. The image of God rebels against the God of the image. We we see our first parents um, rebelling against God. They uh, they were created to be the stewards of all creation, right? They, they They were created in the image of God and given the responsibility of managing, stewarding, being vice regents over all of creation, uh, exercising in a sense the image of God uh, through creation and maintenance, right? God gave them a garden and said, keep it and expand it, right? Here's this gift of culture, be culture makers, keep this gift of culture and create more culture, have children and populate the world and continue to, to bear my image, and, and they rejected that, right? Um, they, they rebel against being image bearers, and they reject their stewardship. They decided that instead of being created in the image of God, they want to be like God. And what that means is they, they don't want to be little images of God dependent on God. They want to be co-equal with God. They don't want to be like God bearing His image. They want to be like God, co-equal with God, competitive with God, separate from God, not dependent on God, but independent of God, right? They wanted to define their own purpose. They wanted to pursue their own pleasure they wanted to mark the boundary of their own glory and they wanted to establish their own security. So they rebelled against God. There's a condition, um, a medical condition called Pika. Um, it, it's common, more common among pregnant people, but it, but it really spans. It's something that when I first learned about it, it was kind of fascinating to me. Pika is this thing where, where people have a strong, impulsive desire to eat things that aren't food, like dirt. Okay? They want to eat dirt, uh, they want to eat chalk. They have these crazy cravings for charcoal. Um, it, it, it can really be all kinds of things, um, smoke cigarettes. Um, it, it's all kinds of stuff. And, and they don't know exactly what causes pica. They don't know exactly what the, the things are that create it. It can be actually a whole slew of different things. But the predominant medical thinking is that what creates it or what drives it is a lack of minerals in the human body. That, that, that you are lacking certain basic minerals necessary for existence, and so it creates within you a craving to eat something in an attempt to, to gain those minerals, like a lack of iron, back into your system. The irony, of course, is that no matter how much dirt you eat, you're never going to gain the iron you need, right? No matter how much chalk you eat, it's not going to give your body the basic building blocks it needs. It creates these, these, these appetites to eat things that cannot give you what you desire, that's a lot like what happened to humanity in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that we end up with disordered desires. We all crave genuine purpose. Think about it. We all crave genuine purpose, something truly meaningful to drive our lives, to give us significance, to give us dignity, to give us honor. We, we all crave purpose. We all crave security. We all want to be safe, right? We, we want to be able to, to, to enjoy the fullness of life without the continual threat of, of harm and danger and woundedness. We all crave security. We all crave approval. We all want to know that we're loved and that we're lovable, that we are unconditionally accepted, that we're delighted in. We, we, we crave approval. We all yearn for genuine rest and pleasure. Right? We all yearn for the ability to be truly refreshed in joy. These are fundamental, basic human cravings, right? The problem is they've been cut off from the source that feeds them. We were created in the image of God to have our deepest desires met in God. He's an infinite God capable to to fulfill our infinite desires. And the more hungry we get, the more fulfilling He becomes, right? God was designed to to meet our basic needs for purpose, security, approval, and, and rest and pleasure. The appetites remained even though we were separated from the God who feeds those appetites. And so it drove us to consume things that don't nourish us. It drove us to start looking to things that God created to do for us what only God could do to be for us what only God could be. What I'm talking about is the birth of idolatry. When we talk about idolatry, uh, a lot of us think about, you know, the ancient civilizations where they would, you know, take a lump of wood and carve it into some image and set it up and they'd make sacrifices to it and they would basically say, you now represent my God and I'm going to make petitions to you in the hope that the God behind you will actually meet me in my need we don't necessarily have statues of cats in our living room. You might. I don't know. Most of us do not have statues of cats in our, in our living room, but we do try to satisfy our eternal longings with temporal things. We do look to the things God created to do for us what only God can do and to be for us what only God can be, right? We, we worship Worship, a way of looking at worship is pouring yourself out in hope of receiving something back. You pour yourself out in worship to your job in hope that it's going to meet your deeper need for genuine significance, purpose, value, and dignity. You, you pour yourself out to your family in the hope that, that it is going to meet your deeper need for genuine love and unconditional acceptance. You, you pour yourself out to your 401ks in your hope that it's going to meet your deeper need for genuine security. You pour yourself out to, to Netflix in the hope that, that binging this show will finally give you a genuine sense of refreshment, even though it takes you until 3 in the morning to get to the end and you're exhausted when you get there, right? We, we are continually looking for things to worship, to pour ourselves out to, in the hope that they are going to to satisfy these deeper appetites and desires. This is idolatry. We are driven to find satisfaction for the hungers of our soul, because while we've been separated from the God who feeds them, the hungers remain, and they drive us. Okay, now we can talk about the wrath of God. You ready? That sets the stage. Um, So, verse... 18 seems rather sudden, right? For the wrath of God is revealed, right? It's, it's very dramatic, but it's honestly not when you think about the flow of the passage, all right? So let me just remind you a little bit. In verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Well, why, Paul? Why are you under obligation to preach the gospel? Verse 16, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, It's my boast. It's my foundation. It's what lifts my head. It's what gives me purpose and meaning. Well, why, Paul? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel at the end of verse 16? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, how, Paul? How is it the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes? Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith, right? The righteousness of God that is given to us by grace as a gift because of the death and resurrection of Christ for those who believe, right? Yeah, but Paul, why did it need to be revealed? Verse 18, because the wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness has already been revealed and is continuing to be revealed. And we need a Savior. The wrath of God is revealed. It's that same word we found previously where it says the righteousness of God is revealed. Is this uncovering, revelation, that it's something that we wouldn't see unless God showed it to us. God is revealing something to us that He is wrathful. And He is letting us see, is uncovering what we would not naturally see on our own and saying, take a look. This is the present condition, not not a future action. It is present tense. The wrath of God is revealed presently and continuously. He is the bad... So this verse 18 is the bad news that makes the good news good, Right? It's like reading um, that there's been a medical breakthrough and some rare disease has been uh, solved, right? That they have finally figured out how to cure some rare disease. That's good news for everybody, right? When you read that headline, you're like, hey, that's good news. But you know what? It's really, really good news if you have the disease. It's really, really good news if that's your problem. And Paul is saying, this is really, really good news because you have a problem. What's the problem? That you are guilty of godlessness and unrighteousness. And as a result, you are under the wrath of God. All right, this is not a popular idea. Let's just put this out there. I know some of you right now are like, dude, I don't like this. I don't want to believe in a God who's wrathful. I've had that conversation, I can't tell you how many times, where I'm just talking about Christianity, I'm talking about the Bible, I'm talking about my faith, and they're like, you know, I just, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath. I just, I don't like it, right? I want a God of love. I don't want a God." Of wrath, and 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 here's the thing: first of all, the Bible is clear. If you want a biblical Christianity, uh, and not a Christianity created after your own image, you have to recognize that God hates sin, and He is righteously angry at it. And here's the next step: it's actually good news that He is. Um, we seem to think that the opposite of wrath is love. That we have two options: we either have a wrathful God, or we have a loving God, and that's simply not true because the opposite of wrath isn't love. The opposite of wrath is moral indifference. A God who has no wrath is morally indifferent in the face of a world filled with injustice, suffering, and violence. His wrath is His outrage at the abuse of authority and power and the victimization of others. It is his refusal to condone or to come to terms with evil. I personally find absolutely no comfort in the idea of a morally indifferent God. I actually find that somewhat terrifying. That a God of of infinite power, who is the ultimate measure of all that is good, would be unmoved in the face of a victimizer's pride in the face of an oppressor's joy in the suffering of another image-bearer of God. I find it no comfort in the idea that that we have a morally um, indifferent God who, who is unmoved by the cries of those who suffer injustice or have their dignity removed by the violence and the wickedness of others. That's not love. The opposite of wrath is not love. It's moral indifference. See, love is the very thing that gives birth to wrath. Because God loves, He is outraged. When what He loves is victimized, when what He loves is degraded, when what He loves is abused, when what He loves is tortured, abandoned, neglected. So let me just give a, a word. Um, the word wrath. I grew up with a wrathful dad. So as a kid, man, I just remember, uh, before my parents split, it was explosive. And once the fuse was lit, you could wa- It was only a matter of time for the explosion. You could watch the buildup before something went through a wall. Okay. So I know what it is to grow up with wrath. All right. Um, I also know what it is to be around religious people who claim to be filled with righteous anger, but really all they have is underlying fear. What they claim is righteous anger at the evils of the world is really just their fear that they may not get to keep what they have or get more. And so they lash out in wrath. I'm not talking about that kind of wrath. When we talk about the wrath of God, we are not talking about human anger. It is not capricious. It is not vindictive. It is not rooted in God's vanity, and it is not driven by His fear. God's wrath is His holy hostility toward evil. It is His righteous indignation at the exploitation and abuse of what is good and what turns the flourishing of life into suffering. His anger. Uh, this verse tells us that his wrath is provoked by two things, right? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Um, ungodliness. Um These are words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. I think a lot of times we just kind of like, we need to just skim over these words, you know, drive by. Like, oh look, ungodliness and unrighteousness. I already know what they mean. Vague sense of just bad stuff, right? (laughs) Ungodliness. Religious people have a great way of abusing this word. When they think of ungodliness, they think of all the bad stuff out there. Oh, those, those ungodly people on the other side of the the, the political aisle, those ungodly people with agendas, those ungodly people, those, they, they have a way of, of, of projecting. The ungodly people are those people over there who clearly aren't moral like I'm moral. They don't go to church like I go to church. They don't read their Bibles. They don't pray. They don't, they don't fight against their sin like I fight against my sin. They are ungodly. And as a result, they are unrighteous. Um, that's a misunderstanding of the Word. Uh, religious people may be comfortable defining ungodliness as the stuff I don't do, but ungodliness is, in fact, trying to ungod God. God. Ungodliness is our attempt to ungod God. In other words, it is our attempt to expel God from our lives and from the universe He created by living lives of independence from Him. I will live life in my power, on my terms, from my goals. I won't live in humble dependence on the God of creation. I will live in independence from this God. That is ungodliness. The word itself, esebia, is the Greek word. It's made up of two parts. Sebia means to reverence or to worship, and the prefix a is a negative. So it means not to reverence, not to worship. So, So ungodliness is to refuse to worship the God who is worthy of worship, not to reverence the God who is worthy of, of reverence? Let me ask you this: What are you doing to try to avoid dependency on God? What are you looking to to give you security or purpose, or joy and pleasure uh, or, or approval? That isn't God. You're looking for things outside of God. You're trying to do life apart from God. That's your ungodliness. Welcome to the club. It's not a problem out there. It's a human problem in here. Okay? It's ungodly. What do you do to avoid depending on God? Do you go to the strip club? Well, that's ungodly. And not because it's a strip club, because it's your way of trying to find rest or significance or pleasure outside of God's design for those things. Do you realize that you can be ungodly by going to church? If your attempt to go to church and read your Bible and check off all these things is to make yourself morally feel good about yourself and superior to others, I'm a good person because I do these things, then your moral efforts of self-improvement are, in fact, ungodliness because they're your attempt to do life apart from dependence on the God of life. I I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. That's awesome. Now I'm getting down to the hard work of no longer needing grace. I used to need it. But I thank God I don't need it as much anymore. Ungodliness, ungodliness, out of our ungodliness flows our unrighteousness. Ungodliness is the root; unrighteousness is the fruit. Right? Um, ungodliness, our determination to ungod God, flows into our unrighteousness. The word for unrighteousness is the Greek word a dekia. Dekia is the word for. For right, righteous, or just, right—it's one of the key words in the Book of Romans. We talked about it when we talked about the righteousness of God being revealed, right? But this is a dekia; it has that negative prefix, so it is—it is not being right, not being righteous. It is being unjust. Our unjust actions toward others flow from our refusal to humbly reverence the god of our creation. We don't want to image god, so therefore we despise those who bear his image. Our ungodliness, our attempt to ungod god flees to flows into our dishonoring of his image and others. When we refuse to worship the god uh, of creation and act that we then act in injustice toward others. And as a result, god's angry These are the things that provoke God to wrath. And this is good news in one sense that I think we would all identify. Um, It's really really good news that no injustice you've ever suffered will go unanswered. No one who has maliciously sought to remove your dignity, attack your security, uh, cover you in shame, remove your joy, increase their joy at the expense of yours who have brought violence to you who didn't protect you in ways you should have protected or cross lines to harm you in ways they shouldn't have there's no act of injustice that you have suffered that has not provoked God to wrath there has been nothing that has been ignored or missed the really bad news is this there's no injustice you've ever done that God hasn't noticed No time that you have sought to live in independence from God, looking to things that aren't God, to do for you what only God can do, or to be for you what only God can be. No act of of injustice toward others where you felt superior to them. You felt like, man, they get what they deserve, where you've increased, you keep what you have and got more at their expense. This was the crime of our first parents. And it's been the crime of every human born ever since, including Paul, including the Romans, and including us. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. At the end of the verse, it says, uh, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, Paul is asserting that we are not unwilling or unwitting idolaters. We didn't just stumble into this by accident. We choose it. We choose it. We know some things we don't want to know. And because we know things we don't want to know, what do we do? We take that truth and we suppress it. We push it down because it's inconvenient, it's challenging, we don't, we don't want it. So that leads to a very natural question. What do we know? Right? What do we know that we suppress? right? Verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God, notice not all things can be known about God, but what can be known, because He's revealed it to us, is plain, because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, whats what's been made plain? For His invisible attributes, things you couldn't see or know without the revelation, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without Excuse God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been made clear in the things that God have made. All right, so think about it like this. Adam and Eve obviously knew a lot more about God than we do, <laughs> right? They hung out with him. Right? In the cool of the evening, Adam and Eve got to walk around with God. I don't know what that was like, but it must have been awesome. Right? God just showed up in the cool of the evening. They hung out, talked about the work of the day, had a few laughs, uh, you know, enjoyed some really, really good food. And then Adam and Eve went to sleep, and, and it was cool. Right, um, I have no doubt that when they were raising their dysfunctional family, and especially when one of their sons murdered their other son, they were not filled with regret and longing for those quiet, cool evenings of tremendous joy. They knew God in a way, their children didn't, and they passed those stories on. But as, as humanity moves forward, those stories become more and more distant, right? Pretty soon, um, the, the knowledge of God is, is, is becoming more and more diffuse and, and, and spread out and, and, and more and more filled with, with legend and myth and, and, and uh, assumptions and doubt. Um, but all descendants, Adam and Eve, their children, their children's children, all the way down to us, all of us have received a specific revelation that reveals to us the divine nature of God and His power, that He is and that He's powerful. Most commentators would argue that this is the revelation that comes to us through nature. Uh, We see this testimony in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament in Psalm 19, 1 through 3, I'll put it on the screen behind me. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Notice that that there's a proclamation, there's a message being given. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, just simply the cycle of the days and of the seasons, the reality of 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 this design reveals something, right? There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. There's no language that this doesn't translate into. There's there's no culture, time, or language that this language has not not spoken powerfully into, right? It's this idea that creation demands a creator, right? That that the design requires a designer, right? If you were to land on the moon and you get out of the spacecraft and, and you have fun walking and you find an Ethan Allen chair, you have one of two choices, either the natural elements combined with infinite amount of time shaped this Ethan Allen chair complete with a nice cushion, a coffee stain and an Ethan Allen stamp on the back or somebody was already there. And for whatever reason they left their chair. All right? A design demands a designer, a creation demands a creator. Right There's a, a very clear sense, and the more we understand of the natural world, the more we do science, the more we recognize an unmistakable imprint of a designer's hand. Now, I understand there are scientists who would argue bitterly with me about this, but the reality is, is when they're honest, they do admit that there is a radical cohesion to all of, all of what I call creation, what they would simply call what is, Okay creation demands a creator design demands a designer that is what i think paul part of what paul is getting at here but i think there's something deeper y'all it's more personal we are part of god's creation are we not it's not just the stars of heaven it's not just the trees it's not just the seasons we are part of creation we were created in fact in the very image of god Of, of all of creation we have the most personal connection with the god of creation And I believe the image of God within us cries out for its original source. I think within each one of us are deep and abiding desires that drive us and drive us home. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, said, If I find within myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We were created to find our joy, our security, our significance, and our approval in Him. And we know, listen to me, y'all, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We know that the stuff we're running after, all the money, the status, the promotions, none of it is going to give us what we really want. We already know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We just don't want to know it. So what do we do? we suppress it so that we can keep chasing the things that don't give us what we want none of it will give us what we really want because it's his divine nature that we truly crave the problem is divine nature his divine nature that he's revealed also comes with his eternal power his divine nature we want his eternal power not so much because that challenges our attempt to be little gods to do life on my terms, in my way, to pursue what I want to pursue when I want to pursue it, in order to be independent and no longer completely and eternally dependent on God. We want all the goodness of God without any of the obligation to God. So we suppress the truth and instead climb back onto our treadmills, pretending like we're actually getting somewhere, working and working and working. And pretend like we're not running from God as we chase the things that aren't God. So we are without excuse. We are without excuse. What's the result? Verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of honoring God, the source of life and goodness, instead of being grateful, Right? Remember, gratitude is different than saying thank you. You can say thank you without experiencing gratitude. Gratitude is an experience of the heart where we are humbled by the gift and we take joy in the giver. Gratitude. Gratitude is a profound experience in which we are humbled by the gift and we take joy in the giver. It's very, very different than simply saying thank you. It is a, if you feel gratitude, you can't help but say thank you. And maybe not even with words, maybe in some other way, but, but it drives you because it's love. Gratitude is rooted in receiving love and in giving love, right? Instead of honoring God and being grateful, they instead became futile in their thinking. Futile. The word futile means empty, useless, fruitless. I like that word, fruitless. I like metaphors. I mean, what better description is there for for what we see around us in our culture today? fruitless. A lot, a lot, a lot of energy. Not a lot of fruit, right? What we're chasing. I mean, what are you chasing to try to finally get the fullness of life? Money? More money? More money will finally deliver you into the fullness of life? What is it? Is it, is it, is it Fame? More people know my name, more people celebrate my presence, more people pretend like they know me even though they don't. Fame? Is is it is it beauty? If I could just have sculpted abs. Then finally people will like my Instagram. Is it experiences? If I can just have one more experience, go one more place I haven't been, see one more thing I haven't seen, take one more picture I haven't taken. What are you chasing to try to get the fullness of life? And how much of it do you need to get there? You already know the answer because the answer is always the same. How much more do you need? A little more. Because it never gets you there. There's great irony in this. I mean, look at our culture, y'all. Look at the people who have the most of what you want. Are they the picture of the fulfilled life? Are they emotionally well-balanced, healthy, respectful, full of joy and freedom? No! They're insane! Don't we already know this? Every generation has a multitude of examples of people who suddenly and miraculously found themselves on top of the mountain we're trying to climb, and they go crazy! Because they got everything they wanted and it gave them nothing of what they truly needed. Yeah, we can't help ourselves envying them. I've had people look me in the face and say, Steve, I know it's not going to do what you, I know it's not going to do it, but I want to experience it for myself. Feudal. Empty thinking, fruitless systems that promise life, but at the end all you're left with is an empty imitation. But you can't stop trying more, claiming to be wise. We've become fools. We've exchanged the glory, the glory of an immortal God, the source and original stuff of life, images. Images resemble men and beasts and birds and bugs. There's something really, really powerful here. We were created to be the stewards over all creation, the fourfold creation of life. We were designed to be the stewards over these things, but in our determination to be little gods, we now look to these little things and worship them and plead with them will you please make me feel like a god the things over which we were to exercise godly dominion we now in the futility of our minds and in the darkness of our hearts pour ourselves out to them in worship asking them to meet the deep desires of our heart which they never can it's utter insanity it is utter insanity. It is complete foolishness. It would, be, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Take a look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Therefore, God gave them up. Those are some of the scariest words in the entire Bible. Therefore, God gave them up. See, three times in this chapter, we see Paul use the word exchange. Exchange. To describe our rebellion. And that's important because our rebellion is our attempt to ungod god God. But guess what? We can't. God can never cease being God, and we can never stop being creatures, right? <laughs> our rebellion can never actually result in, in the hoped outcome, right? We can't un-God God. And so the best we can do is exchange. We can't actually un-God God, so instead we just exchange the glory of God for the degradation of idolatry the gifts of God for the futile pursuits of trying to have our deepest appetites met and things that can't meet them. Three times Paul uses the word exchange where we try to replace God and His design with something else so that we can pretend to be independent from God, that we can pretend to be like God when we can't. And in response, three times God in judgment gives us over three times three times we initiate and three times in response god responds giving us over it's a judgment god gives us over to our desires he's like it's like holding back my dog right when he's just dying to go after this thing it's going to kill him I'll give you over. I'm not only, here's the thing with give over. This is an active verb. He not only removes the barriers, he creates a tailwind. You want it? I'll not only remove the barriers, I'll make it easier for you to get there. It is judgment. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, it's really, really interesting when you read about that when, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and, and says, Let my people go. And and throughout those chapters, there there are times when it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you go a few verses later and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which one is it? Pharaoh hardened his heart or God hardened his heart? And the answer is yes. God gave him over. You really want to fight me? You really want to enslave my people? You really want to pretend that your power as Pharaoh is equivalent to my power as God? All right. I will give you over. The judgment that's being described in this passage is terrifying. Because we will not only willingly, but delightfully run with all the energy we have Into the destruction of our own souls. We will, with all of our energy and the futility of our minds and in the darkness of our hearts, consume the very poison that will eat us from the inside out. So there you go, there's our passage. Cheerful stuff. It's the bad news that makes the good news good. So let me give you three observations as I wrap up. Uh, This isn't one of those sermons where I'm going to come and say, here's some great application points. This isn't a practical sermon, right? This isn't one of those sermons that helps you balance your checkbook and have a better marriage. Um, But it is one of those sermons that can give you tremendous insight into the nature of your own heart. So a few things I just want us to see um, coming out of this. First uh, Paul speaks in, the chap- in this chapter in the third person. I-, I don't know if you noticed that. He keeps saying God gave them over to the lusts of their heart instead of saying God gave us. Wouldn't that be different if, God- if he said us and we instead of they and them? Right? But he doesn't. He uses the third person, they and them. And I-, and I think there's two good reasons. The first is, again, in Eastern contexts, uh, they favor indirect confrontation. Right. In Eastern context, instead of coming straight at people and having direct conversations of confrontation where people are in danger of losing face um, and going down the honor scale, he instead um, creates an environment where he can, he can call something out and then invites us to see ourselves in it. Okay? So it's, it's indirect. But I think there's another thing going on here. I think Paul knows that we are really, really tempted when we read these verses and read they to see other people and not ourselves. That when we read about their ungodliness and their unrighteousness and their idolatry and their judgment, we're really, really tempted to see all the people we don't like and we don't agree with and to feel really good about ourselves and somewhat, you know, have a little bit of pity for them, but they kind of get what they deserve anyway. I think Paul's okay with us feeling that way through chapter 1 because something's going to happen in chapter 2. Right? If you don't approach this passage with humility, there's going to be a gut punch of humility coming in chapter 2. Who are you, oh man? We're going to get there, but I'm just letting you know. I want you to observe what's happening because I think Paul's being intentional. As he goes through chapter 1, he knows moral, religious, righteous people are going to go through chapter 1 and see them and not us and feel somewhat comfortable that they're being judged because we're okay. So I'm just letting you know that's coming, and no, you're not supposed to be off the hook. Secondly, this whole chapter is about the wrath of God, but it's really interesting that the word sin never appears in this chapter. The Greek word hamartia, sin, it means missing the mark, never appears in this chapter. Now, why is that important? Because the word sin, which is used in the book of Romans, we'll get there, we'll talk about it, it means to miss the mark, it's talking about moral failure, It's talking about not doing the things you're supposed to do or doing the things you're not supposed to do, right? It is missing the mark. And hamartia is not the point of chapter one. He's not talking about missing the mark. The language that he uses in chapter one is drenched in honor and the rejection of honor. Our root sin isn't that we choose to do the wrong thing. Our root sin is that we refuse to honor God as God. And we refuse to move in gratitude toward Him, which is a humble joy at His presence. Our root offense against others isn't that we, we sin against them. That is an offense. But the real root is that we refuse to honor the image of God in them. That's why we feel free to sin against them. That's why we feel free to say negative things about them, to say negative things to them, to abuse them, to exploit them, to to say, well, that's your suffering, but at least I benefit from it. What allows us to do that is at its root a refusal to honor the image of God in them. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Our lack of reverence for God leads to our injustice to others. So he's going to talk about sin later, but I think it's important that we, we... we recognize that in chapter 1, he's exploring the root of that sin, because the root <clears throat> isn't our lack of moral performance. That, that's the fruit. The root is our lack of genuine honor and reverence for God and honor for others. Third, and lastly, isn't it incredibly good news that the righteousness of God has been revealed? The picture that Paul paints for us in this chapter of our current condition and our rebellion against God is terrifying. Without the gracious intervention of God, we would run to our own destruction. God would in his judgment, answer our every prayer. Giving us exactly what we ask for, knowing that it'll take us exactly where we don't want to go. And we would fill ourselves with bitterness and pain, swallowing the poison and suffering the results, and we would be blaming God for the result of our own choices. Were it not for the grace of God, the righteousness of God. It's like the person praying to win the lotto unaware that winning all the money is gonna cost him everything valuable in his life. (laughs) We get what we want and lose everything we need. How can we not, like Paul, let this message renew our joy in a God who substituted himself for us? That's the message of the cross. Jesus didn't just die to be a moral example. He died to be a just Savior, a substitute. One who bore the wrath we deserved so that we could be freed into a blessing we could never earn. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Is it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Isn't that good news? I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll take some time for reflection. And we will share communion in a moment. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of revelation, even when it reveals things I don't want to see. The wrath of God is revealed. Man, I don't want to see that. (laughs) I don't want to see that you're angry, and I don't want to see why you're angry, because it exposes my guilt, highlights my cosmic treason my selfishness, my pettiness, my my glory-grubbing and grabbing little hands trying to steal from you what I can never take. But Lord, it's real. And I thank you that it is in grace that you reveal not only your wrath, but your divine and gracious plan to deliver me from it. You have also revealed that the very righteousness of God is available to me by faith if I simply trust. Once again, trust. Even as our original parents were called to trust and be dependent on you as the source of all that is good. I pray for us that we would be progressively freed from the insanity of our idolatry and freed into the joyous freedom the dignity, the honor of being those that are loved by you and are being set free into the glorious kingdom you have created for us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.